Ruth chapter 2. In chapter 1, we read how hard and difficult times have came to Naomi, and she doesn't handle it well. Imelech, her husband, has carried Naomi off to a foreign land, Moab, where Imelech, shortly thereafter, he dies. And she has two grown sons, Malon and Chilion, and they also die. And this leaves Naomi with Orpha and Ruth, her daughters-in-law, with no grandkids. Orpha returns to her family and uh, her former way of life, leaving only Ruth and Naomi. Naomi decides it's time to go back to Bethlehem, so she packs up and Ruth along with her, and they walk back to her hometown of Bethlehem, and she, Naomi, is a bitter woman. Bitterness can steal the vitality from your life if you allow it. Naomi is unable to appreciate Ruth. She loves Ruth, without a doubt, but Ruth will become the greatest gift that Naomi could ever have. But she's still bitter. She cannot see any good in her situation. And she even goes so far as to blame God for her plight in life. How I wish that were the case for modern man. It's not unusual for creation to blame our creator. Consider that. I once heard a man say after going through some difficult, rough times, and he says, when I get to heaven, I got a few questions for the man upstairs. <laughs> he might have a few questions for you too, buddy. But insurance companies... They call weather catastrophes acts of God. They will describe disasters as being of biblical proportions and seldom as people do we give God credit for the good he does through weather. California this past week, I don't know if you've watched the weather, but they went from drought conditions, reservoirs being very low on water, to a deluge in water. They got more rain in one week than they normally get in a year. Don Pedro, the largest reservoir in California, went from low teens in capacity to over 80% capacity one week. That's unheard of. So in one winter storm, rainstorm, California went from extreme drought to abundance of water. The reservoirs in California allow the farmers to irrigate their crops, and that affects the whole food supply of all America. 
I farmed in California for a little while, and I rejoice along with the farmers that are very happy now to have water to irrigate their crops. But in a week, just in one week, God broke the drought in California. And God has also broken the drought that was in Bethlehem that caused Emelech and Naomi to go down to Moab. And there is abundant bread now in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Naomi and Ruth, they take this long trip. They're walking back to Bethlehem. And they arrive at Bethlehem during the grain harvest. So let's read Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of good wealth, of the family of Emelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, go, my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Imelech. We read that Boaz, Naomi's dead husband's near kinsman, is very wealthy. Boaz, the name means stand in strength. But Ruth, notice her. She's not willing to just sit there and let come upon her what may. She, she asked Naomi, Give me your blessings that I may go and glean after the harvesters. Follow the paid reapers, the paid harvesters there in Bethlehem. And Naomi tells her, Go, Ruth. And so we pick up the rest of the story in verse 4 through 10. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servants who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servants who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, this is Ruth. Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field nor from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Ruth just so happened to come to Boaz's field. You ever heard the term, what a coincidence? Maybe it was God directed, huh? <laughs> Boaz, he is a noble man. He's of the tribe of Judah, and he's very rich. King David will come from the lineage of Boaz. 
King Solomon will name one of the strong pillars in the temple uh, after Boaz, which means stand in strength. Boaz happens to be a typology of Christ in the book of Ruth, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, and we all need one of those. But back to Ruth. She is motivated. She's energetic. She is a doer. She goes out to glean, and she so happened to find herself in Boaz's field. Ruth is not too proud to glean. Gleaning was reserved for the very poor to give them something to eat. She is a Moabite, a cursed Gentile to the Jews. The Moabites in Deuteronomy 23.3 were not allowed to come near the tabernacle of Israel for ten generations. That's a long time to hold a grudge, a long time to be separated, a long time to be considered unclean Gentile. Ruth knew of this curse upon her, and she asked Boaz, How is it I have found favor in your eyes? That's a good question, Ruth. But Boaz, he's a man of compassion. He's a man of honor. And he has told Ruth, Stay in my fields among my young women, and the young men will protect you. This is when Ruth falls on her face in humility before Boaz, admitting that she is a foreigner. So let's pick it up again in verse 14 of chapter 2. And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. No, now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Boaz knows of Ruth's character, and she has uh, done good by her mother-in-law, Naomi. Her faithful care of Naomi has not escaped Boaz's attention. Boaz, he's the kinsman uh, of Naomi, he is fully aware. He knows what's going on in his business, in his fields. And he knows of Naomi and Ruth's predicament, and he's willing to help them. And he pronounces a blessing upon Ruth for her kindness to Naomi. Verse 12, may the Lord repay your work. Aren't you glad that the Lord repays us? What if you had to depend on me to repay you for the work you did around here? <laughs> You'd be in trouble. But anyway, 
may the Lord God of Israel give you a full reward. May the true and living God whom you've sought refuse from bless you, Ruth. In the same way, caring uh, that a mother hen spreads her wings over her chicks. That's a beautiful analogy when you consider it. The animal kingdom demonstrates care for their young in beautiful ways, marvelous ways. Right after Buttercup. Now you all know Buttercup. Buttercup's my big brown cow, my dominant cow. And she recently had a calf. And I went out to give the cows some sweet feed. Now they love sweet feed. That's how you train them. And, and I poured some sweet feed in the trough. And Buttercup, my largest, my most dominant heifer, have, just having her calf will not even come up to feed on the sweet feed. She does not risk her calf being hurt by the other cows. She hangs back, and she misses out on the sweet feed. Now, if you know Buttercup, that's unusual. <laughs> But she's being a protective mother. And her being a mother prevailed over her desires for some sweet feed. I gained a new respect for Buttercup then. <laughs> Cute name, too. I didn't name her. But anyway. And there's several examples in Psalms of a mother hen protecting her chick by gathering them under her wings. Psalm 57, 1, I'll read it for you. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take my refuge until these calamities have passed by. The animal kingdom is used as an example of protecting their young and we all know that you never get between a mama bear and her cubs. That's suicide. <laughs> but notice that Ruth, after the parched grain, her lunch has been passed before her, she kept some back for later. And I think she kept some back for Naomi too, taking care of Naomi. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, there were fragments of fish and bread left over. And he told the disciples, go gather the fragments. There's no waste. There's no throwing away of good food in the kingdom of God. How many of you were raised that you clear your plate when you eat? <laughs> we live that. I still do that. And I hear, well, think of all the starving people in India. And I tell mom, give them mine. <laughs> they can have it. They're welcome to it. Let's move along. Ruth, verse 15, chapter 2. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her, 
Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, so she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. So she gives Naomi the meal. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he, the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabite said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any of the other fields. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Boaz has got his eye on Ruth. <laughs> he instructs his young men, don't rebuke her, don't chastise her. In fact, I want you to drop a little grain here and there purposely that she can glean plentiful. Ruth returns home with a generous amount of grain. Naomi sees that she's got too much grain for just a regular gleaning, and she wants to know where she gleaned. I followed the women of Boaz in their fields. Naomi, sort of shrewd, she puts it all together. And now Naomi, she can sing a new song. No more call me Mara or bitterness, but now call me blessed. Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Now this is a complete turnaround for Naomi. First we don't understand fully her despair, her bitterness, but now she's blessing the Lord. Thank you Lord for blessing me. And Naomi tells Ruth, stay close by the workers of Boaz's field. This is a big turnaround for Naomi. She now has come to the realization that God is for her, not against her. Have you come to that conclusion? Have you fully realized God is for you and not against you? That's a big turn, I think, in many Christians' lives, to know that God is for me, that he loves me, and he's got the best for me. Have you ever had tragedy come upon you? If you're over 12 years old, you have. <laughs> Naomi has experienced difficulties. Her expectations of going down to Moab, they were dashed. Her daughters got married, uh, her sons got married, they both died. 
sends one daughter-in-law back to her uh, family. Ruth won't go. And Naomi's dreams are crushed. They're broken. We don't know if Naomi had any say whatsoever in going down to Moab with Amalek, her husband. But there, her husband dies and her two sons die. And Naomi is now alone, except for two daughter-in-laws who are about as useful as she is. There are no help whatsoever in her mind. And she mourns with them and tries to send both of them home. Orpha heeds Naomi's advice and she goes back to her family. But Ruth, she won't have anything of it. Ruth, I think, has compassion for Naomi. She sees Naomi. She sees her predicament. And she understands that Naomi is not only grieving but she is now destined to be poverty-stricken. There was no welfare system there for Naomi. Life will be difficult for Ruth, but she chooses that life. She is young. She could have remarried, but Naomi has captured Ruth's heart, and she's going to do everything she can to help Naomi even though her life looks like it will be one of poverty. Why does Ruth know this? Because Naomi tells her daughters, you know, go home. She tells her the hard, cold facts that their future is not with her. They have no future if they stay with her. But Ruth has chosen to stay with Naomi, and she will also worship Naomi's living God. You can't, you can't get past that. It's there. Naomi, at first, she can't appreciate God's blessings. She's too caught up in her distress, how everything has gone against her. You know, call me bitter. Naomi is blind to anything good that could happen to her. Be on guard about being bitter. Bitterness will lead you into a life of unthankfulness. It will lead you into a life where you're not any fun to be around, believe me. You will be labeled an ingrate. And those traits are displeasing to our Lord because our Lord calls himself the good shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd. And I was thinking, well, I need a good example of bitterness, unforgiveness. And so I came up with one, the Apostle Paul. Outside of Jesus himself, there's no one in the New Testament more respected than the Apostle Paul. He authored about one half of the New Testament. Uh, he had Barnabas, the encourager, as a missionary partner. So let's read Acts 15, 36 through 41. And uh, 
<clears throat> it'll tell us a little bit about them. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that he should not take uh, with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had gone out with and gone from them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul and Barnabas want to go back to every city that they've been a missionary to and see how the church plants that they have planted, see how they're doing. Uh, they started churches. They were a great missionary team, Barnabas and Paul. But Barnabas, he's determined to take with them his cousin, John Mark. But the Apostle Paul, he is just as determined not to take Mark. For Mark had deserted them in Pamphylia. Mark, according to Paul, was not going to get a second chance. Not going to happen. You're not going to go with me and uh, minister again, Mark. And we have two apostles, apostles in sharp contention. Two brothers in the Lord who had ministered the gospel in very successful way. Barnabas had sought Paul out for ministry. Barnabas is the one that went and got Paul for ministry um, there at Antioch. And this is right after great persecution had come to the church because of Stephen's death. Barnabas bringing the former persecutor, Paul, into ministry. You would think this is a team that can't break up, can't come apart. The Holy Spirit himself had chosen Barnabas and Paul as a team. They had prayed over them, sent them out. But now there's this sharp contention. This disagreement between them, it's so alive, this contention, that they can't work with one another anymore. Barnabas has forgiven his cousin Mark, but Paul, the apostle, he hasn't. And Paul is bitter, unforgiving towards Mark. But both Barnabas and Paul continue to be ministers of the gospel. They, they go out. They pick a different partner and go out. <clears throat> but in Acts, we find a book written by Luke. He shows us Paul cannot forgive Mark. He will not continue on with Mark, but that will change. Paul was not a diplomat in any way. He was never, I think, politically correct about anything. 
For Paul, everything was black and white. No gray areas with Paul. And he is not willing to go or forgive Mark. Mark had deserted them. When things got tough, Mark left. And we can understand Paul's bitterness. We can understand it. But Paul has forgotten how he was once the church, church's top persecutor. And that was only a couple, three years back. But after a few more years, Paul's bitterness, his attitude towards Mark, it has changed. Paul, in his closing summary of Colossians, and you may want to turn there, Colossians 4, 10, and 11, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome you. Welcome him. Paul is saying, receive Mark. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are in of the circumcision. They have proven to be a comfort to me. Paul writes his instructions to Colossae, a city that they had planted a church. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he says, receive him, bring him in, welcome him. For Mark is a fellow worker in ministry. And he has proven to now be a comfort to Paul. Paul has forgiven Mark. No more bitterness against him. And in 2 Timothy, we find Paul, as he has once again been abandoned by fellow ministers, in his reaction to this abandonment, it's worth reading. 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 11. And this is Paul speaking. Be diligent to come quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Then he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Demas has left Paul and went to Thessalonica, and it says he loved the present world over ministry. Cretans for Galatia and Titus for Dalmatia. Only only Luke remains with Paul. The great apostle Paul has one person with him, and it's only Luke, a Gentile. And Paul is growing old now. He realizes the end is near, and he's closing out his ministry. But Paul wants Timothy to seek out Mark, this one he was not willing to forgive, and bring him to him. Paul has reconciled with Mark. He's forgiven Mark. And Mark has forgiven Paul. For Mark, according to Paul, is useful to him for ministry. You ever think 
Paul was probably a little difficult to work with. <laughs> Paul was a fellow that you had to be all in or you weren't in at all. <laughs> and he's that kind of person. Everywhere Paul traveled in his missionary journeys, it was either riots or revival. Not much in between. But Paul, in his devotion and commitment to Christ, the Apostle Paul had held a grudge against Mark. He'd argued with Barnabas concerning Mark, concerning the fact that Mark deserted them. But now Paul, he's been abandoned. He's the alone apostle, and he's wanting and needing Mark. Paul has come to a conclusion. Maybe Mark isn't so bad after all. <laughs> Paul now wants Timothy to bring a warm coat for him, bring the Old Testament scriptures, and bring John Mark, for he's a good brother, and I need him. Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, we see him standing firm for Jesus, willing to suffer. And he even talks about how he went through all these different sufferings for Jesus. But, uh, but Paul has been seasoned by disappointments of other supposed ministers. And we read in verse 16 of 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one stood me, with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. What an attitude change. What an attitude change. A bitter Paul has become a loving Paul, a forgiving Paul. You might say that life has beat on Paul enough to tenderize him. Paul is now ready to love and appreciate Mark. And he admits that he needs him. And this isn't just some average Christian in the New Testament. This is the great apostle Paul. Realizing we need to forgive. We need not to be bitter. And we need one another. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for fellow believers who believe as we do, whom you love in the same way that you love us. Lord, I pray that you would build friendships among us, your body, Friendships that uh, are just sweet. They're just strong friendships. Friendships that will serve one another and love one another and bear with one another, Lord. We need one another. And if Paul had to learn that lesson, I'm sure we need to learn it, Lord. There's none of us that is an island. We need one another. We need the prayers of one another. We need the love of one another. And thank you, Lord, for, for bringing Mark and Paul back together. 
healing that rift that was between them. And Lord, I pray that we would be forgiving in our own hearts and lives. And there's not a one of us here that hasn't been done wrong in some way, some fashion. Help us to be loving and forgiving. And Lord, keep bitterness away from us. Bitterness gives us that tunnel vision. We get so short-sighted when we become bitter. Lord, heal us of any bitterness that might take root in our heart. We want to be loving. We want to be like Paul was at the end, not at the beginning. So help us, Lord. Go before us. Watch over us and give us the attitude of you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.